Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Thank you for tuning in. It's wonderful to be able to come together again for this Bible study, a quite interesting one uh, today, talking about uh, resurrection before the cross. We are going to look into some beautiful stories in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I hope that uh, you'll be uh, blessed with these um, beautiful stories and the teachings of the Bible. I would like to welcome our panel today, and it's good to have you with us, uh, Joe. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us, Denise. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Nick. Brenton, it's good to have you with us. It's nice to be on, Nick, and uh, we're looking forward to a most interesting topic today. Lija, thank you for joining. Yes, thank you so much. I feel very privileged. Len, it's also good to have you part of this panel. Well, thank you, Nick. I appreciate the welcome and hello, listeners. And Will, it's good to have you with us today and uh, thank you for uh, preparing this Bible study. You are going to facilitate this discussion today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick, and welcome you too. You've got an important role there behind all the controls and all of your contributions are also appreciated. Thank you. Well, thank you for that, Will. And uh, I would like to just hand it over to you. Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. I've always been fascinated by the history of ancient Egypt. So let me share with you a quote from Discover magazine, the 10th of March, 2021. It reads, ancient Egyptians loved life and believed in immortality. This motivated them to make early plans for their death. They believed that life would continue after death, that they would still need their physical bodies. Thus, preserving bodies in in as lifelike a way as possible was the goal of mummification and essential to the continuation of life. The Egyptians believed that the mummified body housed one's soul or spirit. If the body was destroyed, the spirit could be lost and not make its entrance into the afterlife. This is why tomb preparation was a crucial ritual in Egyptian society. This process began long before a person's death and involved the storage of items that one may need in the afterlife, such as furniture, clothing, food, and valuables. Even a retinue of servants were prepared for burial, to serve again and forever. We know that the bulk of the ancient tombs, contents, have since been looted or taken away by grave robbers and archaeologists, Today, most of those mummies are displaced and are now lying in museums with all their artifacts all over the world. All of these mummified individuals still await entrance into the afterlife after thousands of years. And the sad fact is, if I may refer to last week's study about the state of the dead, they are no nearer to a resurrection than the people who were buried in our cemeteries yesterday. 
So, when does the afterlife experience begin? We need conclusive evidence. And the Bible, I believe, is the best source to which we can turn. But first, I think we need to pray. Lydia, would you pray for us, please? Almighty God, Father in heaven, thank you so much for being here to search again into the treasure of your holy word for more meaning and better understanding. In the name of Jesus, the Prince of the Universe, your beloved Son and our wonderful Savior, please bless us in this moment through your Holy Spirit with your wisdom and deep understanding of this sensitive topic we're discussing today, Resurrections Before the Cross. As we search through the files of ancient lives for the plain truth that death is only a state of sleep, Mm. we thank you that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Yes. Please, Father, bless every ear who is listening and every heart that will open to process the plain truth that you, Father, are love. That in your presence there is no death and death didn't come from you. Father, thank you so much for being here with your presence with us. Mm. In Jesus' precious name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lydia. We start in the Old Testament and find there some powerful references to the resurrection of the dead. Besides the comforting hope and promises that the Bible gives us, there are actual accounts of resurrections, definite historical events heralding the power of Christ over death. Yes, we can refer to cases in which people were actually raised from the dead. In this study, we will be dealing with those that took place before the cross. Of course, we can add that there are a number of incidents after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but we will be looking at those at some other time. The first recorded resurrection was that of Moses. Then, during Israel's monarchy, life was restored to a young man, the widow, the son of the widow of Zarephath. That was in Elijah's time. Following this, there's the Shunammite couple's son who was raised during the ministry of Elisha. Consider for a moment these are actual resurrections in the Old Testament. Then when Jesus Christ was here in the flesh, he resurrected the son of the widow of Nain, then Jairus' daughter, and then Lazarus. Now as we look at these resurrections, we find something interesting. Except for Moses... All these people were raised as mortals who would eventually die again. And as we review these cases, we can get a clearer picture of the biblical teaching of the unconsciousness of the dead. Another thing stands out pretty clearly. In none of these accounts, nor in any other biblical resurrection narrative, is there any report of a supposed afterlife experience immediately following death. I'm sure throughout history, hundreds would have approached these individuals to hear about experiences somewhere after they had died. So let's look more closely at the resurrections 
that occurred before Christ's own death and resurrection. And we'll start at the resurrection of Moses. Moses, we know, was not permitted to enter into the promised land. So I want to ask, what became of him? Well, just a little bit of background with Moses. As you've already mentioned, he was not permitted to actually enter the promised land. Now, we know that he'd served God faithfully for about 40 years. Well, all his life, really, but he and he led the Israelites for 40 years throughout the desert. And on the verge of going into the promised land, God tells Moses that he won't be going in. And the reason being was that he broke faith in the presence of the Israelites at the waters, and he did not uphold his holiness among the Israelites. Now, we know that Aaron was also held responsible for this, and neither of them went into the promised land. Now, when the time came, Moses climbed to the top of Mount Nebo, and the Lord said to him, uh, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and when I said I will give it to your descendants, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over it. Now, Moses was 120 years old at the time. His eyes were not weak or his strength gone. He was full of vitality. And when he went up there and had a look, he probably lay down, this is how I imagine it, lay down to have a rest and went to sleep and um, died, died in his sleep. The Bible goes on to say that the Lord buried him in a secret place. Somewhere, I suppose, the children of Israel would not have built a shrine and turned him into some sort of God, which could have been very likely. And so there is no doubt that Moses died and was buried. But the story does not finish here. We know in the book of Jude, it tells us what happened next. Now, we don't know the time, you know, how long it between one and the other. But in the book of Jude, it tells us that Christ comes to resurrect Moses and Satan is very quick to dispute this. If I may read a quote, it says, Christ himself with the angels who had buried Moses came down from heaven to call forth the sleeping saint. For the first time, Christ was about to give life to the dead. As the Prince of Life and the Shining Ones approached the grave, Satan was alarmed for his supremacy. Christ did not stoop to enter into controversy with Satan, but Christ referred all to his Father, saying, The Lord rebuke thee. The resurrection was forever made certain, and Satan was despoiled, or shall we say robbed, of his prey. The righteous dead would live again. Now, If Moses had gone to heaven to be with God at his death, why would it be necessary for the Lord to return to the gravesite and raise him from the dead? And Satan would have nothing to dispute because it would have been done and finished. Too late for him to dispute anything. The truth is, though, that Moses had gone to sleep and now, or died, and now Christ had come to call his servant forth from the grave. Now, we know that Moses now resurrected and ascended to heaven, just as you mentioned, Will. Um, He did not go on to live and die again, but was actually ascended to heaven. He makes an appearance in Luke on what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, the circumstances are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus goes up to pray in a mountain. I suppose he's been praying for a long time and, and well into the late evening, perhaps through the midnight. And 
we know that as he prays, he becomes changed. His robe becomes white and glistening. His face changes. And two men appear and talk to him. And they were, it says, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory. And they talked about his upcoming death and um, the close of his earthly ministry. And the disciples were very, very sleepy, but when they fully awoke, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And, of course, they hear this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, that's that's the appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now, we know in this instance it appears that Moses and Elijah are alive and well and they are comforting and encouraging Christ. It was Moses and Elijah, not just their spirits, because Elijah hadn't died, as we might remember from our Bible study. He'd actually been taken to heaven in a chariot, fiery chariot. So in summary, I guess it's quite a bit there. Moses died and was buried by Christ, was resurrected by Christ. Satan angrily disputed this as he saw this an encroachment on his turf and Moses belonged to him. Just as everyone who dies, this claim fails and Moses is raised from the dead. This is undeniable proof of Christ's coming victory over Satan, sin and death. Satan and his host are banished from the scene and we can gain much comfort from this because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. I guess that was quite comprehensive, but um, there's a lot in there because the story of Moses spans the whole Bible. You have him hap- it's happening in very early on in the Old Testament, and then we see him appearing in the New Testament. So it spans the whole, the whole um, Bible, if you like. There's an important point here, I think, Will, that um, I think Joe has summarised it pretty well, but here's an interesting point that I was thinking of as she was speaking. Most people today believe that those who go to heaven when they die, uh, that they're trying to contact us in some form or another. That's the common belief. You ask any Christian who believes in this particular uh, way, and they will generally say, isn't it nice that they're up there in heaven looking down on us or trying to communicate with us or whatever? What's interesting is, as Joe pointed out, we do not know the time lapse between when Moses died and when he was resurrected. Now, the person who took his place as the leader of Israel was a guy called Joshua. Now, in Joshua chapter 1, God speaks to Joshua. He said, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Now, he should have said, look, Moses is here. He can give you a few words of counsel. Um, He didn't say that. He said, I was with Moses and I'll be with you. I believe that's another good reason to believe that the Moses that was resurrected was the full Moses of the body, the soul and the spirit and that the Moses that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration was the same Moses. Yeah, true. Well, I think the resurrection of Moses can be a comfort to us as Christians. Yes. Because we can know that it's not just words we're believing in, but an actual event. Moses was resurrected. 
So if we die in the Lord, in other words, if we're faithful to the Lord, Moses is what we would probably say the first fruits of those who are resurrected. So that can give us hope and comfort that we can have that same experience, provided, of course, we're faithful. Indeed, Len, indeed. Nick? Yes, I just wanted to add also that um, as on the Mount of Transfiguration appeared Moses and Elijah, it's interesting that one represents those people who went to sleep, I mean, who died and were resurrected, and the other one represents those people who never died, and they were translated, if you like, uh, into heaven, which will happen when Jesus will come. Uh, again, those people who will be alive, they will be caught in the air with Jesus. And I think that's a beautiful picture to see those two um, aspects. Another thing which I like to mention, uh, Joe was referring and quoting that passage in Jude, when um, it says that, that, you know, Jesus came down to, to take Moses, to resurrect Moses, and there was an argument there in between, um, you know, Jesus and Satan. It's just an interesting thing here, because Satan knew that if Moses is taken up there in heaven, no chances, you know, to do um, to do anything, to claim anything, because you see, Jesus was not yet came to the cross to pay the price. Now, everyone who was dead was still in 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 Satan's hands, to say so, and he was not let it go easily. That because he knew that as soon as Moses will be resurrected and taken in heaven. He wouldn't have a chance. But before that, he was still hoping that he will succeed in his plan against the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that he may not be able to carry the plan of salvation. That's a very interesting thought. And yeah, um, I thought I would just share that. Yeah, it's interesting that Jesus said that I have power to lay down my life and to take it up again. But, uh, you know, the possibility, I believe, that that Satan thought that Jesus would not succeed, and that would immediately negate or uh, disqualify everybody that was risen up until that time from living forever. Uh, Quite a thought, Nick. Thank you. You know, Moses' privilege to be raised to eternal life differs somewhat from the other resurrections in the Old Testament. Now, let's take a look at them one by one. And we perhaps we could also reflect on these people raised to die a second death on earth. But there's one very touching resurrection in the time of the prophet Elijah. Elijah. Uh, yes, the same Elijah whom we've talked about, talked about that was alive in, and taken to heaven and uh, appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. This uh, Elijah's resurrection, or the resurrection in the time of Elijah. What happened here? Lydia, would you like to lead us in that? Yes, sure. This uh, case occurred during the great apostasy of Israel, uh, which happened under the influence of King Ahab and uh, his pagan wife um, Jezebel. So a severe drought was ravaging the land of Israel and uh, 
God took care of Elijah, a committed servant of God, in this extremely difficult time when uh, there was no safe place for him in Israel. And he commanded him to go to Zarephath uh, of Sidon to stay there. And he says that uh, he commanded a widow in that place to supply food for him. As he went there, he uh, met this uh, widow that he could see her gathering some sticks um, to make a fire. And he asks her for a little water in a jar if he can drink. And uh, straight away after he asks her to bring him a, a piece of bread. Uh, and the widow says that as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Uh, I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, and we may eat and die. So Elijah in this moment assures her that not to be afraid, but to go home. And as she said, to first make a small cake of bread for Elijah and bring it to him, and then make something for herself and her son. And uh, this faithful widow, she did exactly as Elijah said, and she trusted God. So later on, her son got ill and died. And uh, as a mother, she was very distressed. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And Elijah pleaded with God and he took the child in his arms and uh, carried him in the upper room and uh, where he was staying and uh, cried to God to restore this boy's life again into him. And um, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the boy returned to him and he revived. I would like to mention here also that this widow's faith was so strong that she shared her last meal. Actually, she uh, placed it first um, to Elijah and later she ate the rest of it. Uh, and the oil um, from the pot and the flour um, never finished until God decided to bring rain again. This is a lesson for us also that in time of trial and want, uh, if we give assistance and uh, sympathy to others in more needed, God has promised great blessings. Well, there's uh, a verse that uh, amongst what Lydia was talking about that I believe is very important. It's First Kings 17, verse 24, and it says this. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is the truth. Now what we've been studying so far in our studies, Christ has come down from heaven and raised Moses to life. Um, when you look at the examples of resurrection in the Bible, whether they're in the Old Testament, which we're discussing this week, and a few in the New Testament prior to Christ's resurrection, it's proving a number of things. The first thing it's proving 
by Christ coming down and raising Moses to dead, as Nick said, uh, from the dead, as Nick said earlier on, it proves that Christ has the ability to raise from the dead. What's happening here is this is a heathen woman. Christ actually refers to this in the book of Luke. And um, he talks about this widow that Elijah was sent to. She was in a pagan area. Now, as a result of this miracle of raising her son to life, she now has total confidence. I agree with Lydia that she had a, a degree of faith by continuing to feed him when the evidence that she had any more meal or oil was lacking. But here she's actually seen her son, who was dead, raised to life again, and this confirms her faith. So there's a pro progression, I believe, in what we're studying at the moment. There's a progression in Christ raising Moses from the dead, a type of all those who will be raised from the dead at his return. Now we're seeing God revealing himself to a heathen woman through Elijah and the fact that she believes implicitly, totally, that what he says comes directly from God as a result of this miracle. I forgot to mention the fact that the widow was a simple woman. She entered in the history and she was mentioned and she will be mentioned all the time because of her faith as, as she lived in a pagan area. Mm, true, true. What a story indeed. And boy, is it any different with Elijah's successor, uh, the prophet Elisha. He's also appointed by God to perform a miraculous resurrection. And I think we should briefly visit that scene. Yes. Uh, well, this miracle takes place in Shunem, which is a small village south of Mount Gilboa. And Elisha used to pass through this region to preach um, the word of God. And this, uh, the Shunemite woman and her husband, they were wealthy people, and they built a special room in their house where the prophet Elisha could stay while he was um, preaching the word of God in their region. So they gave him hospitality um, in this room. He had a bed, he had a table and a lamp, and they, they were very good to him. This woman had no children, but Elisha promised her that the following year she would have a son, and it happened as he predicted well, this child uh, grew and was healthy, but one day was out in the field with his father. He became sick and he died. Now, the woman was quite distraught about this and she hurriedly made her way to Mount Carmel where Elisha was and she asked him to come with her to see her son. So Elisha came with her and they prayed together over this child, that the child will be raised to life, and the child was brought back to life. Wonderful news there, doesn't it? Well, in these cases, there was a prophet present. But I want to read to you something which is quite different. You find this in Second Kings chapter 13 and verse 21. I'll repeat that because you'll find this quite interesting. Second Kings... 13.21 It says this Once, while some Israelites were burying a man Suddenly they saw a band of Moabite raiders So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb Which would have been like a cave When the body touched Elisha's bones 
the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Now we can speculate what went on. There was no prophet present, just the dead body of Elisha. Elisha had died. He was dead. His body had decomposed. There was just bones, skeleton left. He was a man who was tossed into this tomb in a hurry, and when he touched Elisha's bones, he rose to life. Now, I can't explain this very well. I have some reasons, but I think we'll leave that alone today because that's not the main point. The point is that in the Old Testament, people who had died were raised to life. Now, there's another mention in Ezekiel chapter 37 about the valley of dry bones. Some people see this as a literal thing happening. But Ezekiel was given a vision with an object lesson, lesson valuable for the faith and consolidation of the people of God at that particular time. Even so, we can draw inspiration from the fact that the Lord will uh, summon or call together the scattered elements of everyone who's ever lived to stand before him in the great day of God. Now, on the news the other day, it had an article about a uh, a lady who was working in a palm oil, um, no, a rubber plantation, who was swallowed by a big snake. What? And they opened up the snake, and sure enough, there she was. But some people have their bones, if you like, scattered all over the place. But God knows, God keeps a record, and even though that might be the case, God will uh, make that person anew, provided, of course, they've been faithful and true. But this is quite an interesting story about this man being tossed into Elisha's tomb. He had died, apparently. They don't normally bury people unless they died. And he came to life while the prophet Elisha was dead as a doornail in that tomb. Interesting. Yes, I just want to um, add and maybe contribute to that uh, amazing story, Len. Um, just bringing to our attention that, you know, even in Jesus' time, there were people who wished only to touch his garments. Now, there was nothing in that garment, you know, no, no, there was no life, there was nothing, but people wished to do that. And you may even remember the story where it says that even the shadow of some of the disciples when it was cast, you know, uh, upon some sick people that make miracles, What's the lesson here? The lesson is that a prophet, it's important. And maybe the words or the faith or the, of the prophet, even when he's dead, you know, uh, it can make a difference in a people's life. What I'm trying to say here, are we representing God? Are we sharing the truth? of the gospel as it is in the Bible, because a prophet was pretty much to reveal uh, the truth of God to its people. But I find that very amazing. And I believe that, uh, you know what, um, some some people may just benefit through their faith, of course, um, of the miracle of God, 
instances like that. Just uh, going back to the two examples of um, the resurrections of uh, Elijah and Elisha, yes, there were prophets available, but these ladies went out to seek them out. They could have said, well, our sons have died. My son has died. Let us bury him quickly and um, just accept it. But no, they went looking, went looking for the prophet and and interceded, interceded for their sons. And I think that very often we could, you know, sometimes for the lack of faith, I'm not saying we should be praying for the dead to be raised or anything like that, but in this example they went out and they they sought the prophet. And Jesus himself, I think, Brenton, you mentioned, and Jesus says, yet yeah, Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region yeah. of Sidon. You know, there were many in Israel with leprosy. There were many, many sons that had died in, in Israel, and yet these were women of faith, one in Israel, one outside Israel, I believe. And so here we have an example of a faith that will not let go. And I think it's an example to us, a good example. Yes, I wonder if this story that I just read a little while ago has been the basis for, in a certain church, keeping sacred uh, relics supposedly from deceased prophets or people. I believe John the Baptist is supposed to have had uh, three uh, skeletons scattered around the uh, different world. One was a very immature one, a visitor one day in one of these churches looking at these holy icons asked the question, how can it be? I've seen John the Baptist's skull in another church and this one is very small. And the answer was, and I say this rather lightly, the reply that was given by the guide was, that was John the Baptist when he was a boy. Now, I don't believe that just touching or kissing the, a bone of a deceased person who is regarded as a holy person has power, but there's something special in this story that we haven't yet put our finger on and probably won't be able to today. Uh, and I guess this is why um, God buried Moses um, in a secret place because this is exactly probably what would have happened. Yes. They would have made the shrine. They would have used his, you know, fragments of his mortal remains um, in a superstitious sort of way because they were inclined that way to, to worship relics and idols and objects. So I imagine, yeah, that's unfortunately what's happened with um all the bones of John the Baptist, perhaps even Elijah, who knows? <laughs> I think that God hides some of these things because of this, um, what you have been saying. You know, I know there are two disputation about uh, where Calvary really was and where the tomb of Jesus really was. There's different uh, ideas on that. And that's why I think God doesn't want us to make relics out of places or our items at all. Just very quick on uh, that one, because I come from a, you know, very traditional Orthodox background in Romania. And just uh, not long ago, a few, a week or two, there was another um, ceremonial about the relics of uh, one of their saints uh, called Paraskieva. 
And I'd like to say something here. It may be a little bit um, controversial what I'm saying, but I would like to share this. We probably were quick to judge those people who are doing that. Because you know what? I know some of those people very sincere and very faithful by doing that. You know, they don't know the truth. And that's why you remember even in the Bible, Israel, which were the people of God, they did things which were wrong. That's why God sent to them prophets to reveal the truth to them. I wonder if we, instead of just looking upon these people, maybe even being judgmental towards them, we should intentionally go and share the truth of the Bible with them rather than judge them of what they are doing. Valuable words. Uh, As we enter the New Testament period, our attention draws to the turns to the ministry of Jesus and a touching scene outside a little village in the Valley of Jezreel, about 144 kilometers from Jerusalem. What happened there, Drenton? It's interesting uh, what did happen, Will. It's it's only a handful of verses, but this little town of Nain is not that far from the town of Nazareth. I've been to Nazareth myself, so um, I'm familiar with that particular town. I don't think I've been to this one. Jesus and his disciples and those with him, it seems as though there's two groups of people meeting. One is leaving town and uh, going to the cemetery to bury uh, this boy. Now, I was only reading, Will, an article this morning by some learned professor who claimed that widows in those times were not, as we commonly represent it, totally dependent upon males for their um, sustenance once their um, their husband had died. But this is rather, I think, instructive because it says in verse 12, and when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. I believe in accentuating these comments by Luke. And Luke, remember, was a doctor. (laughs) He was probably highly trained and highly qualified in his field in his day. By qualifying these remarks, the only son of his mother, the Greek word is the same word that we use sometimes when talking about the Trinity, the word monogenes, the only one of a kind. So he was the only son of his mother, and it seems obvious from this reference that uh, he, she was dependent upon him for her earthly support, and now her earthly support was gone. I, I find it interesting that Christ, because of his compassion, and this is something we can certainly share with our listeners, I believe, folk, sometimes we lack compassion. I really believe that as Christians, people who believe that Jesus is our saviour, we need to pray daily. I know I need to pray daily for compassion, to have the kind of compassion for people that Jesus had. There's no suggestion here that he said to a woman, you need to have some faith because I'm going to do something special for you. He doesn't say any of that. He comes up alongside her gently. She's weeping, probably uncontrollably. Uh, she doesn't know what the future is going to hold. Um, her faith, whatever it is, is is being blown apart with the death of her son. 
Jesus comes up and touches her gently and says, woman, don't weep. Weep not. And then he simply goes over to the bier, touches it, which would render him ceremonially unclean, and says, young man, I say to you, get up. He gets up and uh, he is restored to his mother. But I think the key verses are verse 16 and 17. Then fear came upon all. That's all those who observed this. That's Jesus' followers, Jesus' party, and the party of mourners who were going with the woman to the cemetery. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. Wouldn't it have been great, Will, if they had stuck with that all the way through? If the Jewish nation had stuck with this thought, God has visited his people. The resurrection and the life, which we're going to discuss in a minute, in the context of Lazarus, here they are, they are recognising that God has visited his people. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God visited his people the same way today? I believe he can if we trust him. Certainly. Thank you. It's very interesting that Jesus never just dealt with poor people. He dealt with important people. And we have a story recorded in three of the four different Gospels about the healing of Jairus's daughter. Now, who was Jairus? Jairus was an important Jew. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And he must have secretly believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus uh, had crossed the lake and a big crowd was there. And while he was talking to the people in the crowd, Jairus came up and he said, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. Now, Jesus healed somebody else. It was a woman who had a severe bleeding problem. And while this was all happening, some servants from Jairus came up. By the way, I'm reading from Mark chapter 5. Some servants of Jairus came up and said, well, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is dead. Well, Jesus never left it there. He went to Jairus's home, and when he got there, there were people all around wailing and like they did in that uh, country at that particular time. There was a big performance showing how sorry people were and so on. And uh, after he was told, Jairus was told that his daughter died, Jesus said, don't be afraid, just believe. I think there's good counsel for us, which we won't have time to deal with today. So Jesus went to Jairus's home, and there were people there carrying on, as I said before. And Jesus said, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. What sort of reaction did that get? Well, they laughed at him, and they mocked him. He put the people out of the house, except the parents, and he took his couple of his disciples with him. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kuam, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. Interestingly then, Jesus gave strict orders 
not to let anyone know about this. I told her to give something to eat. You know what they did? Well, the news spread like wildfire that Jesus had healed her. We have in this story in Mark 5 how Jesus restored a sick lady to health. We have in the same chapter a story of how Jesus restored a little dead girl back to life. Jesus is in the business of restoration. And this story about the resurrection of Jairus' daughter can give us comfort. If we die in the Lord, we have the promise of restoration back to life, not temporary, but eternal. That's good news, Len. That's good news. Great news. You know, all the miraculous resurrections by the power of God are amazing. But one, they say, in the ministry of Jesus has been called the greatest miracle of all. Now, you'll see if you agree. What is this powerful witness of Jesus' authority over death, apart from his own resurrection, of course? Brenton, do you want to answer that one? It's the story of Lazarus. I I think most people who know anything about the Bible know something about the story of Lazarus, so I'll summarise it as quickly as I can. He was a very, very good friend of Jesus, along with his sisters, Martha and Mary, and Lazarus became sick and they sent a message to Jesus saying, the one that you love is sick. And Christ, instead of coming straight away to heal him, simply made an interesting comment in verse 4. He said, his sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Now, you get a lot of themes in the in the 11th chapter of John. Basically, Lazarus does die. Jesus um, allowed him to fall asleep, as we have talked about in our study today and previous studies. And Martha comes to him when she finds out he's nearby, and she said, Lord, in verse 23, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Some of the key texts, Will, that we can share in our, our summary is this. Jesus said to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, interestingly enough, in verse 24, she says to Jesus, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And so Jesus goes to the grave uh, along with the mourners because he's been there four days. Now, the Jews believed that the soul, the immortal soul, those who believed in this, they believed that the soul hung around for three days afterwards. This is four days afterwards. The body is starting to putrefy. It's starting to decay. And uh, there's no doubt whatsoever that Lazarus is dead. He's been wound up in grave clothes. He's been embalmed. He's got a head cloth on and all of these things. And Jesus comes to the entrance of the tomb and he says this. He said, after praying briefly, he said, Father, I thank you. You've already heard me. I'm saying this not because I don't doubt, doubt you. I'm saying this because of the people who are standing near. And then he said in a very loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Some versions have Lazarus come out. Now, if he'd been in heaven, he should have said Lazarus come down. And can you imagine Lazarus saying, no, no, I like it up here. I don't want to come down and enter enter my body again. He had nothing to tell 
in regard to this. The reason Christ did this was to demonstrate to those present, some of whom were Pharisees and Sadducees, because um, it seems that the family of Martha and Mary were fairly well connected. He was demonstrating beyond any doubt that he had the um, power over death and the power over the grave, and he could resurrect this. Now, just very briefly, I want to tell you this. I'm studying with someone down here who's a, in the southeast who is a policeman. He told me this story only yesterday. He told me about a, a, a man that he knew in the police force who had a growth the size of a football discovered in his body. They put him on the operating table and they operated on him and he died on the operating table. And they had to go through a process, as often happens in uh, cases like this, they had to go through a process of resuscitating him. He said what was interesting about it, he said, is that all these people who believe that when you die, you go somewhere, they were all asking him afterwards what happened. And he said, I don't remember anything from the time I went into the operating theatre till the time I opened my eyes and came out again. Now, if you want to talk about near-death experiences, this is an interesting one. Uh, but here, Lazarus had no story to tell either. And uh, I think it's proof that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If we trust in him, we're completely secure. The question is, why did Jesus call, uh, say that Lazarus was sleeping, as yes. he also said about Jairus's daughter? The yes. answer is that they were raised back to life. Now, when what we would call a saint, someone who trusts in the Lord, has accepted the salvation of Jesus, and is living a life of faithfulness, dies, that can be called asleep because they will be resurrected. But as for the wicked, that's another story. That's not called asleep. That's just they have died. I like also to mention that um, in all these uh, examples we talked about today, we learned that people were celebrating life. They really praise God for the resurrection of uh, those people who we talked about, you know, in those stories. Is that not paradoxical that uh, even after the great resurrection of Jesus Christ, people are more tempted to celebrate death? And as we air this program, actually, a lots of people will celebrate the death through the Halloween, for example. This is a big question mark for me. And maybe for you, my dear friend listening today, why should we celebrate the dead when all these stories talk so much about the joy of life and everyone is looking forward to the living one, not the dead? Yes. I'd like to read a quote. When Jesus arrives on the scene, both sisters express a very profound truth. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mm -hmm. That's John 11, verses 21 and 32. In Christ's presence, I believe, there is no room for death because he is the source of life. Martha and Mary had seen Jesus heal the sick. They knew that he brought life. In the presence of God, would you say, there is no death? 
death didn't come from God, I think it flees from his presence. It's something to think about. If Jesus is present, there is life and death has no chance. Now, in the context of death and dying, and then resurrected to life again, only to die again, how can we explain Hebrews 9.27? Do you want to tackle that one then? Well, it says this, It is appointed for men, that's people, once to die, and after this the judgment. And I want to dissect this particular verse, starting off with it is appointed. In other words, it's going to have, uh, death is going to happen to everybody. We have birth control, but not death control. All of us, sooner or later, will have a personal, unavoidable appointment with death. So that's the bit, first thing. Everyone is going to die. Secondly, there are no exceptions. We have read about two exceptions in the Old Testament, about Enoch and Elijah, but there are no, no exceptions. Everybody will die. Three certainties in life, death, taxes and change. And then it says it's appointed for men once to die, unlike the James Bond movie where it says you'll you'll only live twice. That means we don't actually get a second chance. What we do in this life is going to count whether we have eternal life or eternal death. Fourth point, after this, the judgment, there is something after death, for Christians at least. That's why we talk about death being asleep. And then the last bit of the verse says, and after this, the judgment. Judgment is no good until the event is finished. My granddaughter is in rhythmic gymnastics. She does performances. The judges don't judge her halfway through a performance. And this is the same with life. We are judged after we die. And if we've been faithful and true, God will give us eternal life. If we haven't been, well, eternal death is our reward. In Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. He that hath the Son hath life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. He that believeth in me, said Jesus, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Christ here looks forward to the time of his second coming. Then the righteous dead shall be raised incorruptible, and the living righteous shall be translated to heaven without seeing death. The miracle which Christ performed in raising Lazarus from the dead represented the resurrection of all the righteous dead. By his word and his works, he declared himself the author of the resurrection. He who himself was soon to die upon the cross stood with the keys of death, a conqueror of the grave, and asserted his right and power to give eternal life. It's a beautiful statement, Joe. Certainly we have hope for the future. You know, Jesus said to Lazarus's sister, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives 
and believes in me will never die forever. And the question he asks here after that in the text in John 11 is, do you believe this? That question addressed to Lazarus' sister, do you believe this, has always tugged at my own soul. You know, the offer of abundant life here on earth, capped by a wonderful life in eternity, all rests in the grace and the power of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You know, it has always been the intention of this panel, Nick, and the panel and the Faith FM team to encourage everyone to make Jesus the Saviour and the Lord of their lives. I think we should pray for each other and to keep the faith and to put our lives into the hands of a merciful God. Let this be our prayer today and always. And I'm going to invite Denise to pray this kind of prayer for us all right now. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the discussion today. We thank you for the encouragement and the hope that uh, these stories have given us about um, being raised from the dead, that you want to raise us from the dead, you want us to live with you eternally, and we know that you have compassion on, on each one of us because you know that in our mortal life that, that we will die, but you have promised that we will not um, stay dead, that you will come and raise us from the dead so that we can live with you. So we pray for uh, a strengthening of our faith. We pray for our viewers, our listeners, We pray for the panel and we pray that everyone will come to know you and to have faith in you and to trust you and to look forward to living with you eternally. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you so much, everyone, for your participation today. Were very exciting um, stories there. But my dear friend, uh, we'll invite you to join us again because we are going to learn about the one who died for us. Our next Bible study will be, he died for us. And that's Jesus Christ. Without him, we wouldn't have any hope. May God bless you and walk in the footsteps of Jesus.